0: Well, if you are brand new, we're doing something this year really interesting. We're going through the entire story of the Bible, doing something we're calling the the whole story, the whole story. And so as you can see, what we've done is we've broken the story of Scripture down into 14 different series, and we've been making our way through these all year long. The hope is that you understand sort of the scope of the story of the Bible because it's a story you're part of. The hope is also that you would learn to appreciate the the incredible profoundness and practicality of the Bible. It's amazing to me that every Sunday we get together, we open up things that were written sometimes 3,000 years ago, and yet they speak to our lives today as if the person who wrote them understands us, and that's because the person who inspired it, God does understand us, whether it was written 3,000 years ago or not. Scripture is incredible, and the the better we know it, the better we understand this whole story that we're part of, the easier we can connect with God in a variety of ways, so it's really, really important. We are in our seventh series, which is called Better Than Gold. We just launched this last week, Better Than Gold. We're exploring these, these books of the Bible that are often referred to as wisdom literature. And that phrase, Better Than Gold, it comes from the book of Proverbs that we looked at last week, which tells us that wisdom is better than gold. You should desire wisdom more than you desire wealth because there's, there's never a scenario in life where you can have too much wisdom. There's never gonna be a day where you're like, you know, I just, I know too much. I know too much, it's time for me to be done. You can never have too much and the more wisdom you have, typically, the better life goes. And so last Sunday, we looked at the book of Proverbs. I, by the way, just have to say that I enjoyed last Sunday as much as any Sunday from a teaching perspective ever because if you were here, one of the main points was keep your pants on and I don't know many churches that could have that be like one of the main points, but it worked, it was fun, and there you go, we got through that. Had to teach Proverbs, there's a lot of Proverbs about that, but but today, today we're gonna look at two books that are lumped in with Proverbs and the Psalms, but if you read them, and maybe many of you have have read them and are familiar, many of you probably not, um, they have a very different vibe. They've got a different vibe. It's the books of Ecclesiastes and Job. Ecclesiastes and Job. If you could take Proverbs and sum it up in a sentence, it might be something like this. Hey, if you do these things, if you do these things that Proverbs tells you to do, life will go well for you. And if you could take Job and Ecclesiastes and and add on to that, it might say, except when it doesn't. Right? If you do these things, if you're really wise and you do the right thing for the right reasons, life's gonna go really well for you. Job and Ecclesiastes show up and go, except when it doesn't. Ecclesiastes and Job get kind of, well, they get kind of dark. They get kind of dark. And so, for example, Job 3, verses 3 through 10. This is Job writing. He says, Let the day of my birth be erased, and the night that I was conceived. Hey, we're getting a lot of Amber Alerts right now on phones. Can we just stop and pray for a second about that? I've heard several of those go off. So Father, whatever's going on right now with with whatever child is in danger, we just pray in your name that that child is found, that that child is safe. Lord, be with the police officers who are searching. And Lord, we just pray that that child finds their way home and they're unharmed. Protect them. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, it says, let that day be turned to darkness. This is very encouraging. Let it be lost Even to God on high, let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it. Let the darkness terrify it. Let that night be blotted off the calendar. Never again to be counted among the days of the year. Never again to appear among the months. Let that night be childless. Let it have no joy. Let those who are experts at cursing, whose cursing could rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Let its morning stars remain dark. Let it hope for light, but in vain, may it never see the morning light. Curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb, for letting me be born to see all this trouble. Yeah. Woo! (laughs) It's in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 1-2, we'll, we'll jump to there. Here's kind of the, the gist of Ecclesiastes if you've never read it before. Um, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. You know, it's like if Ecclesiastes and Job were personified as two friends, they would be like those friends you have that you just don't wanna be around that often because they're just bummers. Like, they just bring everything down. I, I turn 40 on Saturday. I'm gonna turn 40 on Saturday. Very excited. Yes, you, I've made it. I feel super old. When I came here to his hands, I was 23 years old. So it's like basically half my life has been here, which is crazy. But, you know, it's like, I'm gonna hang out with some people probably on my 40th. I don't know that. I'm not in charge of that. I've kind of told my wife, let's not do something big, please. I don't trust her. Uh, I'm not sure what's gonna happen. But if I was in charge of who's gonna be there, whatever's gonna happen, it, I would never invite people like, like Job and, and Ecclesiastes, like people who have that mentality. Because if I invite them to my 40th birthday, I'd walk away from it being like, well, I'm, I'm basically dead now. You know, all my best years are behind me. All that I have to look forward to now is the slow and steady inevitability of death. Like that is what I would feel if I hung out with people like, like this, that have these sort of mentalities. It's really dark and it's really bleak stuff. I've never met a person who said their favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. I've never met a person who says Job is like the best. But I'm also super grateful that we have these scriptures because darkness, struggle, confusion, pain, suffering, it's part of life. It's part of life. And the fact that God was so good that he gave us scriptures that speak to to that part of life with such a level of genuineness and authenticity that when we're in that stage, when we're going through things like that, when that's just where we're at, we have scripture that speaks to it. It's kinda like if you're ever having a really bad day, the, the most annoying thing in the world is like a really peppy song. You know what I mean? Or like a person who's all bright, and, and cheery and you're having a rough day and you're just like, shut up. I don't, even if they're trying to cheer you up, you're just like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to be cheered up. I want to wallow in my pain, right? Maybe we don't say that, but sometimes we're going through things that are hard enough that we kind of have to just be in it for a while. It's part of life. And I love the fact that scripture has such depth that it's not just happiness and and everything's gonna be great and positivity. No, no, sometimes life doesn't feel that way and Job and Ecclesiastes are scriptures that can speak to us in those places. And If you've ever been there, and most of us have, it speaks to us in that place and it gives us wisdom for how to get out of that place. See, Proverbs is wisdom for for life when it's going well. Job and Ecclesiastes are wisdom for when life has not gone the way that you want it to go. And that is how life often goes. Life does not often cooperate with our plans, our dreams, our hopes, sometimes even our prayers. And when life hits us really hard, we can get to a dark place pretty fast. There's sort of this progression. And I think most of us have experienced this to some degree. You could be doing really well in life. Everything can be going great. And then all of a sudden, disappointment hits. Something doesn't go the way you wanted it to go, now you're, you're disappointed. And if you don't deal with that disappointment, if it lingers, it can grow and it becomes discouragement. Now you're not just disappointed, now you're, you're discouraged, just kinda down. And if that grows and it's not dealt with, then that discouragement will become disillusionment. Now it's not that you're just discouraged, you're disillusioned, you really can't even see a way out. And if that continues, it can become disbelief where you are, are in such a dark place that in your mind, this is just the way it is and nothing can change it. And that can happen in every aspect of life. That can happen in your marriage. That can happen with your career. That can happen with the world around you. It can even happen in the way you perceive your relationship with God. What do we do when we find ourselves in a dark spot? We need wisdom, divine wisdom, And Job and Ecclesiastes give us that wisdom for the dark times. So let's jump into Ecclesiastes. Let's go through this. And and by the way, I recognize that I hope not all of us are in a dark season. That would be, if you are, God wanted you here for a reason. I know a lot of you pretty well. And I know a lot of you, I'm just looking around the room, who have been through some pretty heavy stuff very recently, or you're going through it right now. But all of us, whether you're in a, a rough season or a really good one, you know what it's like to be there and you know that you could be there again one day and how amazing is it that God wants to speak to you in it. So I just wanna say that as I frame this. Let's jump into Ecclesiastes. Verses one and two of the very first chapter says that these are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. If you could sum up the entirety of Ecclesiastes, you just say, you know what, nothing matters. Nothing matters. It's all pointless. That is repeated over and over again. And Ecclesiastes is really interesting because it's it's written by Solomon, who was the same guy who wrote Proverbs, but he's writing it in a very different place in life. Things have not gone well. He's drifted far from God. He's had a lot of, of suffering as a result of that. And he writes this in a very unique way. There's two characters speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the narrator who sets it up at the very beginning, and he introduces this person he calls the teacher. And for most of the the book of Ecclesiastes, we have the teacher talking to us, saying all kinds of things. And then it finishes going back to that narrator who says, okay, now that you've heard from the teacher, this is what you should really take away from this. And so it's not that everything in Ecclesiastes is meant to be taken at face value. It's not that everything the teacher says is 100% true, and this is how you should live your life, and this is what you should base your life on. It's, It's telling you on the front end, hey, there's this guy, this teacher, and he's got a lot of wisdom, but... Also, keep in mind, he's pretty jaded, he's very cynical. And so listen to his perspectives, listen to the teacher's observations about life, glean wisdom from it, but remember, this is a jaded dude. And so there's a lot of gems in Ecclesiastes, there's amazing scriptures like, enjoy life, there's a big theme in Ecclesiastes that if life is going well, enjoy it, because you don't know how long that might last. So if you can enjoy life today, go enjoy life today. If you can eat good food today, go eat good food. Ecclesiastes teaches us that two are better than one, that three are even better. That's something that we read at weddings. It's the only part of Ecclesiastes anyone would ever want read at a wedding, actually, is is that part. Ecclesiastes teaches us that there's a season for everything, that everything happens in in seasons in life. There's so much wisdom, but there's also a lot of, of bleak darkness in Ecclesiastes. And so, for example... Ecclesiastes chapter, oh, let's go chapter two, verses 12 through 17. He says, so I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness, for who can do this better than I, the king? I thought wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness, for the wise can see where they're going, but fools walk in the dark. And yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate, both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as a fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is all so meaningless. For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. He goes on in Ecclesiastes 2.18 to say, I came to hate all my hard work here on the earth for I must leave it to others. Ecclesiastes 12, he says, um, oh no, we'll, we'll pause there. He goes on and he says things like, I looked at all the oppression in the world, I looked at all the suffering in the world, and I said, this is all meaningless. I looked at how like, a lot of wealthy people have their wealth from ill-gotten gains, and they use that to just build up their own lives, and the poor people suffer. And basically, you read through Ecclesiastes, and it's just like, you know what? Nothing matters. Everything is meaningless. There's injustice, it will never change. All your hard work is gonna be handed off to someone else to enjoy. Everyone's gonna die. Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that is, that's just like, bam, bam, bam. It's like he's at a bar and he's just kicking them back and he's like, and another thing, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's rough, it's rough. But it's honest. It's honest. It's interesting to have the perspective of this wise man Solomon writing from a point when life went really sideways, mostly from his own fault. And you can be tempted as you read Ecclesiastes to take that as the major takeaway, to say, okay, well, this is the, I guess there's just no point. Why even try? But when you get to the end, the narrator jumps back in. Ecclesiastes 12, says, my child. This is the narrator, not the teacher talking. Let me give you some further advice. Be careful. For writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. In other words, he's saying, like, hey, this teacher that told you all these things, like, yeah, knows a lot of stuff, but there's a limit to that. That's the whole story. Here is now my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week in Proverbs. Fear God shows up a lot in this section of Scripture. It is not saying tremble in fear, be afraid of God because he's out to get you you've made a mistake and God is now looking for an opportunity to punish you. That's not what it means at all. It's this idea of reverent awe, of being so in awe of God that you recognize how big he is, how great he is, and you live your life oriented around God. Basically, the the narrator says at the end of Ecclesiastes, yeah, take everything that that teacher said, glean wisdom from it, but remember, at the end of the day, just, just honor God. Live your life connected to him and follow his commands. That's the, It's the best way to live. Pin that. Just keep that pinned in your mind for a moment. And let's look at Job. Job is is a very different story. It's a very different form of literature than Ecclesiastes. It's it's an actual self-contained story. We don't have a lot of those in the Bible where you have a, a whole book that's just start to end one story. Job's a really interesting one. He's a good man. He's a really good man. In fact, he's like the best guy alive. Like he is, if there is an award for best dude on the earth, Job wins. And we get this really interesting story about Satan interacting with with God, talking about Job. And so in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, it says, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, he stays away from evil. And Satan replied to the Lord, well, yeah, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but do not harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And you might be reading that going, is that how this works? Like, because if so, I just want to fly under the radar. Like, I don't want to be too good if that's the way things go. And look, Job's an interesting book of the Bible. Some scholars, many scholars will actually say that it's the oldest of all of the, the books, meaning that it was written, not that its events necessarily happened first, but it, it was written before anything else that we have in all of scripture. It is an extremely ancient document, and many scholars believe that it's the story of an actual person who, who lived. Many scholars believe too, and, and there's merit to both, that it's, it's an allegory, that the book of Job is a story that's meant to teach us something, just like Jesus would teach in parables, and for example, he told the parable of a, a rich man and a man named Lazarus, and it seems like it could be like a made-up story, even though there's people who have names. Lots of merit to both views, not sure which one is true. Ultimately, what we have to understand is that this story is meant to teach us some really valuable truth, really valuable truth. I I tend to lean that Job was an actual person. Um, I'm okay with the idea that it's an allegory because of the way that it's written sort of hints at that at different times. Uh, But either way, this story is powerful. It's scripture, it's inspired truth. And it's meant to teach us something really important, that if you're too good, Satan comes after you. No, I'm joking, that's not the, the takeaway. Satan goes hard after Job, really hard. He loses all of his wealth, all of his children die. Just like that, gone. And he is, as you can imagine, broken. He is broken and the rest of Job plays out with him trying to process what's happened. And it's, it's his conversations with all of these people who try to help him process. So his wife, not helpful. She just, and you can understand, she's in pain. She says, you should curse God. Curse him, abandon God, because clearly he's abandoned you. In fact, if there's sort of an overarching theme in Job, just like Ecclesiastes says, nothing matters, it's all meaningless. Job is like, God has abandoned me. God has rejected me. He's abandoned me. Maybe you felt like that before. And then Job has these friends that show up. You know when you're having a really hard time and you have these friends that mean well and they come and they talk to you and they try to like give you good advice and talk you out of it, but it's not helpful at all. And you just have to sit there and be like, thank you, thank you, please shut up. You don't say that but you feel that. Maybe you've never been there. I'm not saying I have, but that's Job's situation. So he's got these friends and they come and they're like, well, Job, clearly you have done something seriously wrong because God is punishing you and God is good and he is just and he wouldn't punish you if you hadn't done something wrong. So come on, man, like fess up. What'd you do? Spill it. And he's like, I didn't do anything. And they're, they're like, liar. You had to have, because look what's happening to you. God would not let this happen to a righteous person. See, that's this ancient idea, this religious idea that God blesses the righteous, and it's our goodness that is the the defining factor in whether or not we're blessed, but scripture teaches us time and time again, no, that's not really how it works, thank God. And then another one of his friends says, well, Job, the fact that you're saying you haven't sinned just shows how prideful you are. I mean, for anyone to say that they're blameless shows how much pride you have. So clearly God is punishing you for your, your pride. He's trying to humble you. And Job's like, I don't think that's it either. And there's this other guy that comes along and, and he's like, hey, you know, I think God's trying to teach you something. Maybe you need to ask what God is trying to teach you. And that's like a super morbid thought that God would try to teach you a lesson by harming you. It'd be like if, with my kids, if I said, you know, they really need to learn how to overcome adversity. So I broke their legs. and. <laughs> I just think that this will teach them that, man, you can overcome anything, you know? Like, I would never do that. That's sadistic. God is not sadistic. God is not the author of Job's pain. Recognize that there's a dynamic in this story that Satan hates us. That's why it's so important that we never allow ourselves to be tolerant of of evil. I don't mean that we're not tolerant of people who struggle with things. I don't mean that we're not tolerant of a confused world and society, of course. But you don't tolerate anything from from Satan because Satan hates you. Satan, he's not, like it basically says at the beginning of the story, Satan's wanted to mess with Job his whole life, but God had just put some protection around Job. The second that protection is is weakened, Satan is like after him. That's Satan. We don't tolerate Satan. He's evil. He hates us. He wants to destroy everything. He's the author of Job's pain, but Job, he's still going through it. And Job's mad at God. And honestly, like if you've ever read Job, you kind of get mad at God. If you're, I mean, at least I'll be honest, you read it and you're like, God, what are you doing? I'm like, this is not, this is not fair. And so Job, he gets to a point where he really questions God and you can, you can see why. So let's look at Job 19, Job 19, six through 11. He says, it is God who has wronged me, capturing me in his net. I cry out help, but no one answers me. I protest that there's no justice. God has blocked my way so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. He has stripped me of my honor. He's removed the crown from my head. He has demolished me on every side and I'm finished. He's uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. His fury burns against me and he counts me as an enemy. Now that's not true, but you can see where Job feels that. He's in a dark place. Like I said earlier, you get disappointed, then discouraged, then disillusioned, then there's disbelief. Like he didn't get discouraged, he got devastated. He got demolished and so everything's happening fast and he gets to this point where he looks at God and he says, clearly God, you see me as an enemy. You've done this to me. Maybe you've been at a point in life where things were going so poorly that it felt like God himself was against you. That's how Job feels. And there's all this questioning of God and there's all this borderline accusation of God, and then we get to God's response. And as we read this, remember how Ecclesiastes ended. I told you to put a pin in that, that idea that we should just fear the Lord and do what he says. God shows up and talks to Job in Job 38. I'm gonna read verses two through 18. It's about half of that chapter. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. How many of you, quick show of hands, are parents? You know what this feels like. It's those moments where your kids, you know, they get to this point where they kinda like, they challenge you and it's time to go, you know what? You know nothing. You know nothing. And you have this like, ah, and they're just like, whoa, 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 what happened, okay? You kinda get that impression from God and Job. Job has legitimate questions and frustrations and God decides to say, hey, You have some questions for me, I have some questions for you. And this is half of one chapter, God does this uninterrupted for four chapters. He's just like, and another thing. Have you ever thought of this? Have you ever considered this? And it's just like, whoa, like whoa. And you get to Job's response in Job 42 after four chapters of just sitting there. And maybe you're not a parent but you've been a child and so I'm sure all of us have memories of that time when either one of our parents or a teacher or a coach just decided to give it to us, and you're just like, you, "What do you do? You just you sit there and you take it until it's done." And it's awful. Job's been going through that, and in Job 42 he responds, "I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you." You asked, "Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance?" It is I and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance." And then God blesses Job and gives him double of everything that he had lost. And so there's this idea at the end of Job, And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, they connect. And this is so valuable for us. And this is so necessary when you're in a dark season. This is like the ultimate wisdom that will pull you through that. And it's simply this, God is God. God is God. What gets you through a really difficult trying time? It's the knowledge and the faith and the wisdom that you know what, I'm not God. And so I can't see a way through this. I don't think I can get over this. I don't think I'm strong enough to endure this. I don't think that this should have happened. I don't think this is fair. I don't think this is right. I don't think this, I don't think this, I don't think this, but I'm not God. He is. And I bow to him and I surrender to him and I trust him. You see, when you're in a dark place, what you need is the wisdom of an eternal perspective. That's where Solomon's words as the teacher fall short so much in Ecclesiastes because it's a very temporary perspective. He's like, what's the point of hard work? You, You work hard, you make a bunch of money, and you're just gonna have to leave it to your kids and they're gonna waste it. You know, that's what Solomon says. And actually, if you know the story of Solomon's family, that is absolutely true. That's what happened. But it's this very temporary earthly perspective. We have a tendency to only define God based on what we experience here. And who could blame us? Like all we have to go on half the time is what we've experienced, but we we see God so much through the lens of our experiences, and it's kind of a trap, because when you get into like a, a dark place when life doesn't go well, if all you can do is see God through what you understand and what you've experienced, you will have a small view of God incapable of pulling you out of a dark place. So we have this tendency to feel like when life's going well, God is doing his job. Right? My life is blessed, everything's great, God is working. Like even when we say God is doing things, we almost always mean like good things. Like your life's going well, the church is going great. People ask me, how's the church? Oh, it's good, God's good. You know, we're growing and this is happening. Let me tell you about Canvas and it's awesome. But in the seasons when things haven't been going as great, which there have been those seasons, I tended not to say, man, God is really working right now. You know, he is just doing stuff, it's amazing. We tend to think that when things are going well, God is doing his job. And when things aren't going well, God is where? Like God is asleep at the wheel. Like he took a day off or something because my life is not going well. That's just how we are as people. We, we tend to see everything through the lens of our experience, but our experience is so limited. And so I'll give you an example. And, and this is, this, I think this is gonna end in a hopeful place, right? I'm, we're teaching all of the Bible this year. This stuff is is hard and and kind of bleak, but it's so good if we can capture the wisdom that it has for us. I was talking with a young man about, probably about 10 years ago, and he was in a really, really tough spot. Just kind of a dark place. And I asked him, like, man, what's going on? He said, well, both of my grandparents, both of my grandfathers passed away this year, and I'm just really struggling to process that. And he said, it's really made me question my faith. Now, how many of you would, and I would love a show of hands here. You're not being prideful, because I'm asking the question. How many of you would say you are a pretty compassionate person? That you're like, MO is like, I just feel for people. Anyone brave enough to say, not really me? Right, okay. Naturally, I'm like you. And so like, one of my grandfathers died when I was two. My grandmother died just a few months before uh, my, my wife and I got married. And uh, my, my most recent grandparent, the, my longest living grandparent passed away about a month ago. And my other grandfather died about 10 years ago as well. So I kind of lost grandparents along the way. And so, you know, I asked this guy, like, well, he was in his 20s. I said, well, how old were your grandfathers? And he was like, well, they're both in their late 80s. And I was like, well, man, and this is, again, 10 years ago. I've grown since, since then. I sh- it didn't work. I just said, well, that's pretty good. You know? <laughs> like, I felt horrible. Because he didn't it didn't, he didn't go, yeah, thank you for that perspective. Thank you so much. Right? I'm like Job's friends. I'm trying to help him and talk him out of it. And he's like not helping. Um, I didn't know what to say. But I was trying to express to him, like, I mean, dude. Like, how much longer? <laughs> were you, like, what's, how's this story play out? You know? Late 80s is... Above average. Because the reality is like every, death is part of life. And so at some point you knew this was was gonna happen, but what I realized in talking to him, and it it very much applies to me, is that it's very easy for us to to live kind of insulated until tragedy hits us. And all of a sudden, we're like questioning everything. When the fact that we live in a world where tragedy happens all the time to other people, we're kind of like, yeah, but it hasn't happened to me. So my faith is strong, and then boom, something happens to you, and you're like, what, God, are you real? That's very normal. And in many ways, it's okay, because it's part of the journey. One of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Many of you know that Psalm. It has an interesting line where it says, he directs my paths, that God directs my path. And then the very next line after it says, he directs my path, is though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. So he directs my path, and then all of a sudden I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Like, why are we here? I thought you were directing my path, God. You should walk us around the valley of the shadow of death. We should take like an airplane over the valley of the shadow of death. But the Lord directs my path, and I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. No, thank you. Unless, of course, part of the journey, part of the path is dark valleys. When you're in the darkness, what is the wisdom that you need? It is the knowledge that God is God and he's with you. God is God and he's with you. That's an eternal perspective because God is eternal. He is constant. His wisdom, it is constant. And when you're in the dark, guess what? His wisdom is with you in the dark. God's power is constant. When you're in the dark, God is with you. His power is with you in the dark. God's goodness is a constant. When you're in the dark, his goodness is with you in the dark. God's love for you is constant. When you're in the dark, his love for you is with you in the dark. The wisdom that pulls us out of darkness is the knowledge that God is God and he ultimately prevails. That's the wisdom that we need. And it's so, it's one thing to like, clap for the concept of it. It's another thing when you're experiencing it, right? Anyone, anyone live in like North Canton at all? Just, I know I'm asking for a lot of hand raising today. If you're new, I don't really ask for that much hand raising. I just saw a person kind of go like this. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, you know, I live on Six's Road. I don't know if that counts. Right, I don't know. Am I the only one who lives in North Canton? Am I the only one who lost power on Thursday night? How many of you lost power? How many of you went to, how many of you still have, don't have power? Any of you? All right, just, okay, I think I see. Like a lot of people lost power. So that was kind of a, a hard thing, because you know we live in this world of convenience, and even though I imagine it's pretty difficult to constantly supply electricity to every house around, as soon as the power goes out, you're all of a sudden like, what is taking them so long, you know? (laughs) Like, you're like, I mean, 30 minutes, that makes sense, but I mean, come on, it's not even like a tornado. Fix it, guys, that's how you start to feel. So Thursday, we lost power at like 5 p.m., and I did learn that my children are addicted to electronics. I learned that really fast about three hours goes by, all their devices are dead. And they're like, what do we do? Like, I don't know, just go outside. They're like, no, that like, was awesome. Um, so I learned we have, we have some work to do there. Okay, good, good knowledge. But you know, bedtime rolls around and this becomes kind of a crisis for my five-year-old. I didn't realize how scared of the dark he is because he shares a room with his older brother and they have this little like projection light that puts stars on the ceiling and it's pretty bright. And that's like a constant in his life. And so he, he asked me, he's like, is the power back on? And I'm like, no, no. You know, we're all sweating, it's really hot. And he's like, well, what, what am I gonna do at bedtime? Is the, he, he asked me like, he goes, it's so cute. He's like, uh, does, the, does the starlight run on batteries? <laughs> and I bent down, I looked him in the eyes and I said, not. No, I didn't do that. I was like, no, it doesn't, man. And he just kind of tears up. He's like, okay, okay. And so put him to bed. I'm like, it's gonna be all right, man. It's gonna be all right. I promise you, I promise you, it's gonna be okay. You're gonna wake up in the morning. And I'm like, this is a faith statement at this point and the power will be back on, right? You're gonna get through this. And then I told my oldest son, hey, just, just in case all the power comes on in the middle of the night, will you go upstairs and turn all the light switches off, you know, except for like their closet light, because I don't want all the lights coming on and like waking them up in the middle of the night. That would just be a nightmare. So just, you know, make sure their closet lights on or whatever that thing is plugged in, but every light come off. And then I found out my son who's awesome, doesn't understand what on and off means. And so, cause at 2 a.m. the power came back on and he had turned all of the lights on, every single light. So, so imagine, imagine that you're my, you're my four year old, you're terrified of the dark. You go to bed in utter dark. I mean, it was actually like super dark because there's no street lights on. Like it is not just our house. It was the darkest I've ever seen our home. And he's just like, ugh, you know? And I'm like, it's gonna be okay. You're gonna wake up to light. <laughs> and then at 2 a.m. it's like, bam! And he's just, ugh, like what's going on? I told you, I told you. I was thinking about that this morning. In fact, I really feel like God just brought that to my memory. It was just a few days ago, so that doesn't say much, but (laughs) we have to realize that there will be a moment like that for all of us. A moment where every bit of darkness and disappointment and pain and suffering and frustration and confusion breaks. There will be a moment like that. Paul wrote in Romans chapter eight, worship team, you guys can make your way out. He said, since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. There is a day where the glory of God will be yours. I don't even know what that means. I don't know like, specifically what the glory of God feels like, looks like. I've had glimpses, I have ideas, but I don't think we could even fathom what that is gonna be like, that the glory of the, of the Lord belongs to you and your destiny is one day to be like clothed in the glory of God. Revelation 21.4 says that the day is coming when he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain, all these things gone forever. No different than my four-year-old went to, to bed in the dark, terrified, confused, not understanding what to do, and in a moment, it broke, and there was light, and honestly, more light than he could handle. There is a day coming for every single one of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus. There is a day coming when all of the darkness and all of the pain will break It will be forgotten, it will be gone, and all you will have is light and glory and goodness. That is the future that we look forward to as followers of Jesus. It's beautiful. And in the meantime, when we're in the dark, we just have to hold on to that truth and that hope. Scripture talks about this hope that is an anchor for our souls. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have hope that is an anchor for your soul. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you steady. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, he loves you. He is real. I'm not gonna force it. I'm not gonna try to pressure you into that. I don't believe in that actually, but I do know that he is everything he says that he is and then some. And I have watched the darkness break in people's lives. I have watched people go through unbelievably difficult things and come out the other side of it in a place of joy you can't imagine. And there's no way they could have done that without God because God is God and only God is God. And that is the wisdom that we need when we're in the dark. We don't necessarily need our circumstances to change, although that would be nice. We don't need everything to go our way, although that would be great. What we need is to hold on to the truth that God is God and he loves me and he's good and he's powerful and he isn't done yet. And I put my trust in him. That's how I get out of the valley of the shadow of death. Job and Ecclesiastes teach us that. And I'm really grateful, really grateful for what they teach us.